Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, I will begin reading at verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. I'll be reading and preaching from the New King James Version. Hear now this reading from God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You once again in prayer and are very thankful for this privilege. We're thankful for the privilege that we have of worshiping our triune God. We're thankful that for the access that we have to you in prayer. And Father, we acknowledge that we are indeed sinners. We have already confessed that before you and before each other. So Father, we acknowledge that because we are sinners, we need your transforming power. And Lord, we ask that you would abundantly bless the proclamation of your holy word. Father, indeed, this would only be a message if it was apart from the power of the Spirit. But Lord, we desire for the Spirit to make this message a true sermon. One that does speak to us one that you use to transform us. Father, we pray that you would do this, even for your glory, but also for the benefit of us, your children, whom you have bought with the blood of your very own Son. We pray these things in faith and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. During the Battle of Waterloo, when the future of all Europe hung in the balance, the focal point of that battle turned to one place. On a hill in the battlefield sat a farmhouse called Cotrebras. Napoleon immediately recognized the strategic value of that farmhouse and ordered it to be captured and held at any cost. The Duke of Willingham, or Willington was equally 
keen to perceive the strategic value of that little farmhouse. And that farmhouse became the hottest point, the hottest spot in the battle. It was captured and recaptured several times during that day. Neither side spared men or munitions to either capture it or to recapture it if lost. Each side recognized that the ultimate victory depended on the side that held Katrabrah. There is a strategic place in the Christian's battle against the kingdom of darkness. There is for you. There is for me. There is for every true Christian church a strategic place that we must hold on to. We have our own katrabra, and that is the place of prayer. In this chapter, Paul shows that his ministry did not only involve preaching, it also involved prayer. He ends chapter 3 of Ephesians with a prayer that concludes the first section of the book. There are three sections in the book of Ephesians that can be divided up this way. The first section being the spiritual wealth of the church in chapters 1 through 3. The spiritual walk of the church from chapter 4 through chapter 6 and verse 9. The third section is the spiritual warfare of the church, chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. The point here is that Paul concludes that first section, the section on the spiritual wealth of the church, with a prayer for these Ephesian believers. The prayer contains one petition and three successive purposes. The essence of the prayer is for God the Father to strengthen them in the inner man through his spirit in order that Christ may dwell in their hearts in order that they may comprehend and know the love of God, the love of Christ, in order that they may be filled with the fullness of God. And what immediately follows is a doxology. Now this message focuses on the prayer, but I'm going to draw your attention at the end of this message to that doxology because of how it relates to Paul's prayer. In fact, how it relates to the prayer he offered for these believers in chapter 1. It's important to notice that this prayer, this second prayer that Paul offers for the Ephesian believers, comes just before he begins the practical section of the epistle. The implication is that these believers, and you too, need to have this prayer answered in your life. 
in order to fulfill your Christian duties. What Paul is doing here is he's actually in this prayer resuming where he left off in the previous prayer, which I preached on last time. That prayer, let me just quickly, quickly cover this again. He prayed for their enlightenment. He prayed for them to be illuminated. Why? So that they would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his uh, riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And here it is. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? And so, as I said, he's taken that last purpose, and now he is making that the petition in this next prayer. Christianity is not a do-it-yourself religion. I heard about that even in Sunday school this morning. Thank you for that, amen. It's not, it's not a do-it-yourself religion. We need to understand when you come to chapter 5 and verse 18, where he says we are to be filled with the Spirit, and then he talks about the relationship between husband and wife. I've heard lots of messages on that relationship between husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, love your wives. I have yet to hear any preacher other than myself say it starts with being filled with the Spirit. If you follow the flow, that's how it begins. The other thing, too, in that next section on the spiritual warfare how does he begin? He begins with by saying, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So Paul is pointing us to our need to be strengthened. That's what the prayer is about. The petition and the purposes of that prayer. And I do want to point out the Trinitarian characteristics of this text. Paul prays to God the Father. It's God the Holy Spirit who strengthens. And it's God the Son who indwells. Notice the petition there in verse 16 that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. See, Paul does not want these believers, and Christ does not want us to be like those that Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, where Paul describes those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. This expression, this phrase, according to the riches of his glory. Paul is praying for God the Father to strengthen these believers according to the riches of his glory. Now this means that Paul is seeking for God to abundantly answer this prayer. According to means at a level consistent with. This isn't on the basis of, 
This isn't out of the riches of his glory. It's according to, at a level consistent with. Does anybody here happen to know Donald Trump? Anybody have Donald Trump as a personal friend? No, you probably wish you did. One of the wealthiest men in the world. Now, let's suppose you happen to meet him out somewhere, and you have a great financial need, and he's a close friend of yours. And you say, Donald, I, I'm in a financial crunch. I could really use some help. And he says, well, I'm going to give you a financial gift out of my great wealth. He reaches in his pocket and pulls out some loose change and says, there you go. That was out of his great wealth. But what if he said, I want to give you a financial gift according to my great wealth. Does that not suggest maybe a little bit more than just loose change? That phrase, according to the riches of his glory, as I said, it implies an abundant supply of that strengthening. He speaks here of God's glory. Heard something about that in Sunday school again today. His glory. That refers to all of his divine attributes, such as his infinite power, infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, infinite love. On and on we could go. So Paul is praying for God the Father to strengthen these believers at a level consistent with the riches that come to us by His glory, through His glory. You can understand why Paul, in verse 8 of this chapter, concludes by referring to the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable means it doesn't matter how far you go into those riches, you're not going to find the end of it. Are you getting the idea here that this strengthening isn't just a little bit? It's lots of strength. And of course, the agent of this strengthening is the Holy Spirit. Notice he goes on and says, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit, through his spirit in the inner man. The inner man refers to your entire sphere of your spiritual life. It includes all aspects of your personality. That's your intellect, your volition, your emotion. To be strengthened with might in your inner man. That's the prayer. That's what he's asking God the Father to do. That's what he's expecting the Holy Spirit to do in the lives of these believers. And let me say this again. Like I said last time when I preached on that first prayer. This is a prayer you should pray for yourself. This is a prayer I pray for myself. I need to pray it more often. But I do pray this. Strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And then he goes to that first purpose. First, verse 17. 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the first purpose. He prays for God to strengthen them. Why do they need to be strengthened? First of all, that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, we understand that this strengthening and then this indwelling of Christ, it has to be understood as progressive. We know from Romans 8, 9 and other verses that when a person believes, that person does have Christ dwelling within that person, within that believer. So what is Paul talking about here? He's not saying that they're devoid of Christ and now they need Christ to dwell in them. His point is that they need to have Christ progressively more and more indwelling them. This increase of his indwelling means that Christ's divine influence becomes more active, consistent, powerful, and effective. Do I need to say that again? The increase of Christ indwelling you means that his divine influence becomes more active, consistent, powerful, and effective in your life. Do you sense that need? Do you sense that need? Well, I sure do. If we desire to glorify our triune God, we need to be strengthened. We need for God to answer this purpose, that Christ would progressively dwell in us. But notice these words, through faith, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I heard something about faith in Sunday school this morning. I heard that there's three different elements to faith. I could say amen to everyone. So whose faith is being referred to here? Paul's faith? Or is it the Ephesians' faith? They need to exercise faith in terms of this answer to prayer, the strengthening and this first purpose that Christ would. Progressively and dwell there. We as Reformed and Presbyterian believers do recognize that faith is a gift, correct? Do you also understand the Holy Spirit didn't believe for you? You believed. And you were justified. You believed. This is a part of your responsibility in terms of Christ indwelling you. You've got to believe that God will answer this prayer and fulfill this purpose. So we recognize that they needed to be strengthened, first of all, in order that Christ would indwell them progressively. But then he goes on to the next purpose. There in the second part of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love, 
may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Why did Paul pray for these Ephesian believers to be strengthened? First of all, because he desired for Christ to progressively indwell them. And they needed to be strengthened and indwelt by Christ in order to comprehend and know the love of Christ. Ask yourself this question. How well do you think you know and comprehend the love of Christ? In my text, it reads, may be able. That's a very weak translation. Uh, If you have something other than the King James, you probably have something that's far better. The sense here is to have strength. It's not just to be capable of doing something. It's to have strength. Oh, where have we heard that before in this text? You need to pay attention to how he develops this theme because this is what he does. He does say he desires for God the Father to strengthen them with might through his spirit in the inner man. And then he says, and may be strong to comprehend. See how he's bringing us back to that petition. And then when we come to the doxology, which we're going to be looking at shortly, it says, Now to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, and here it is, according to the power that works in us. This is a prayer that is full of pointing God's people to divine power. But also, the result of being progressively indwelt by Christ is expressed here as being rooted and grounded in love. Now, there's no object here after the word love. I would understand that Paul's intent is for us to understand he is referring to love for God and love for our fellow believers and even all men. What are the two greatest commandments? To love the Lord your God with your entire being, and the second, Jesus says, is like unto it. To love our neighbor as ourself. If you add the words, and this is the sense, before being rooted and grounded in love, you say that you, because of being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend and know the love of Christ. You and I need to be rooted and grounded in love to fully understand, to fully comprehend the love of Christ. Notice the words here, though. He says may be able to comprehend with all the saints. One of the things that's very important for us to do when we read the Scriptures, when we consider our Christian life, is to recognize 
recognize the corporate nature of Christianity. The Bible doesn't teach lone wolf, lone wolf Christianity. We're part of a body. We are united together. And notice how he's pointing them beyond their local congregation. He says, with all the saints. It's one of the things I appreciate about Presbyterianism. A Presbytery, a group of churches, a group of ministers and elders, united together. By the way, the pronoun you throughout this text is plural. Paul was a good southern living today, he said, y'all. Y'all, that's one of the things that South has had going on for so long, you know, understanding the importance of a plural you. Now, in my text... I have a dash at the end of verse 18. And there are some who believe that the dimensions here that are given, we don't know, we have to guess what the object is. What, what is the object of these dimensions? Some have suggested that these dimensions express the vastness of God's grace, and His grace is vast. The vastness of God's work of redemption, and that is vast as well. Earlier, he has talked about the the mystery in this chapter. And then also, at the end of chapter 2, he speaks about the Christian temple. But that's not what's going on here. Um. Most versions actually have, at the beginning of verse 19, the word and, and that's correct. In the Greek text, there is a conjunction that's usually translated and. And so the idea is maybe strong to comprehend and to know the love of Christ. To comprehend and to know the love of Christ. In other words, what Paul is pointing us to is the vastness of Christ's love. What's the measure of Christ's love? How do we, how could we possibly measure our Savior's love for us, His people? I believe that the measure of the intensity of Christ's love is the intensity of his suffering upon the cross. I think there's a connection there. There's only one group of people who have any concept of the intensity of Christ's suffering upon the cross. There's only one group of people that have any comprehension, any sense of the intensity of Christ's suffering upon the cross. And that group are those who are in hell today. What they are experiencing is a measure of the suffering of Christ upon the cross. Thank God. We'll never know that. 
So the dimensions express that no matter how far you go in any one direction, you will never come to the end of Christ's love. His love has the width and the length to include those of all nations. His love has the depth to reach to the lowest sinner and the height to raise His people to the joy and the glory of heaven. A vast love. The Greek word here that's translated to know at the beginning of verse 19 is a word that expresses knowledge gained by experience. Charles Hodge suggests that the word feel has the approximate sense. I understand what he said, to comprehend and to feel the love of Christ. I think we could take that a step further and substitute the word enjoy. To comprehend and to enjoy the love of Christ. Do you delight in your Savior's love for you? I like the way Charles Hodge goes on. He says this, Without being strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man, without the indwelling of Christ, without being rooted and grounded in love, it is impossible to have an adequate apprehension of the gospel or of the love of Christ therein revealed. Great summary. Now, one commentator describes Paul's desire for the Ephesians to comprehend and know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. He calls it a great paradox. It's not a paradox. See, Paul is not expressing his desire for believers to know the unknowable. That would be a paradox. Now, what Paul is expressing is his desire for these Ephesians to know what is beyond their natural ability to fully know. That's his point. Beyond their natural ability to fully know. That's why these believers, and that's why you and I need to be strengthened, and for Christ to progressively indwell us. And understand, your progress, well, let me ask you this, I'll do this as a question. Do you believe that your progress in comprehending and knowing Christ's love will ever end? Can the finite grasp the infinite? No. For all of eternity, we will learn more and more about the vastness of Christ's love for us. You know, I think there are a lot of Christians who struggle with this whole idea of God loving them. I don't know if God really loves me because, you know, I was so wicked before he, hope he saved me. I was so wicked before then, I just don't see how he can love me. Or I've done something so bad, even as a Christian, 
I'm still struggling with the idea that maybe God just really doesn't love me. You follow where I'm coming on this? There are people that I think don't understand it. Understand this. There's Christ loves you infinitely. That needs to sink in. That needs to get a hold of you. And remember, measure of the intensity of his love for you is the measure of the intensity of his suffering upon the cross for you. We come to this final purpose there at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, you read the commentary literature, there's all kinds of explanations and interpretations of what that means to be filled with the fullness of God. Let me point out, first of all, that the preposition is translated with, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, is better translated as until the fullness It doesn't mean with. It really has the idea of unto. It expresses a progression. So it does refer to the point to which we are to be filled. And again, that expresses a progression. I believe that when he says here that this third purpose is to be filled with the fullness of God. He's actually going back to the very first purpose. What was the first purpose? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's taking his full circle. The difference is there's a difference between mere indwelling, and we would understand that's progressive, but now Paul is making it abundantly clear. I want that to be so fully realized in you that you are filled with the fullness of God. To be filled with Christ is to be filled with the fullness of God. What does it look like to be filled with the fullness of God? It's Christ-likeness. It looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, Christ has moved from Christ progressively indwelling us to being actually filled with Christ himself. But look at the doxology. Notice how he begins. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. The first part of this doxology, what Paul is saying, is that because God's ability is beyond everything, that is, it's unlimited, he can do abundantly beyond what we ask or think. There was a prayer request made in chapel pastor in New Mexico named Shelby Moon was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia and he'd been given eight weeks to live. And the requests were something like, well, let's, let's pray for 
his wife, who's about to become a widow. Let's pray for his, he's got a large number of children. Let's pray for his children who are about to become fathers. Let's pray for his congregation. They're going to be without a pastor in just a couple months. And I sat there thinking, I'm going to pray for God to heal him. Why shouldn't I? God's able to do above and beyond what we can think or ask. This is not beyond God's ability. Well, it was announced in chapel just a few days ago, maybe a few weeks ago. The man is completely cancer-free. Oh, by the way, that was four years ago. Four years ago that he was diagnosed. Are you getting my point here? He's able to... Now, it doesn't mean that everybody we pray for is going to get healed like that. But it doesn't mean he can't heal somebody like that. That was Everybody's just going, wow. That's, Lord really did a great work there. And he did. And he did. So the idea here of... These words, asking and thinking, shows that God's power is not limited to our prayers and even our thoughts. And then, we understand from this text that God's unlimited ability is joined to his unlimited love. The reason you can expect God to do for you abundantly beyond what you ask or think is because his unlimited power is joined to his unlimited love. Which he talked about in verses 18 and 19. The power that Paul refers to here is the Holy Spirit, which is evident from verse 16. But notice how Paul ends verse 20. According to the power that works in us. He's able to do for us according to the power that works in us. Again, This phrase, according to, means at a level consistent with. At a level consistent with the power that works in us. What Paul is saying here is the same power of God that works in us is the same power that works for us. This means that the sanctifying power of God working in you is unlimited. And the power that he exercises on your behalf is unlimited. Sanctification is the supernatural work of your omnipotent God who uses the same power to work on your behalf. Again, the same power that works in us works for us. And it's the other way too. Perhaps, and I said this last time when I preached before you from the first prayer, perhaps the reason you have doubts about God working for you 
is because you do not sense him working in you. There's a very interesting story that has come down to us from the days of the Renaissance. There was a young sculptor who had just finished a statue of an angel. And then he concealed himself because, well, he wanted to hear what his mentor, Michelangelo, would say when he saw it. And so he concealed himself. And when Michelangelo arrived at the studio, he looked at the statue for a while. And the young sculptor waited in breathless suspense to hear the great master's verdict. Finally, he heard Michelangelo say, it only lacks one thing. Michelangelo left, and the young man was absolutely devastated. He could not imagine what his statue lacked. What was it? He thought it was perfect. He expected to get high praise from his master, but he didn't. He was so upset he couldn't eat or sleep for days. And a close friend got very concerned and decided he better go to Michelangelo's studio and ask what is it that the statue lacked. And so when he arrived at the studio and asked Michelangelo, Michelangelo said, it only lacks life. It only lacks life. There are many professing Christians who are like that statue. They have outwardly conformed to what a Christian is supposed to be. Something is lacking. They have no spiritual life in them or they have very little spiritual life in them. True Christianity is the result of spiritual life. And with this spiritual life comes the power of God to transform lives. So Paul prays for God to increase the strength of the Ephesians so that they would enjoy everything else that follows in the prayer to be progressively indwelt by Christ, to know and comprehend the love of Christ, to be filled with the fullness of God, which is to be filled with the fullness of Christ. As I mentioned before, this prayer comes just before the practical section in the book. That section deals with the believer's walk of obedience. This implies that God's answering this prayer was necessary for these Ephesian believers to fulfill their Christian duties just as it is with you. It is my prayer for you that God would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you because of being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height 
and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this prayer. And Lord, we know it came from the mind of Paul. But this is an inspired prayer. This was inspired by your Holy Spirit. And we do understand that this prayer ultimately came from the mind of our dear Savior. Lord, may this be a prayer that we pray for ourselves and even others who need to be strengthened. We pray in faith and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.